Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Parents, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we've been going through the book of Isaiah. Not every verse, but uh, representative passages. And we find ourselves this morning in chapter 52, verse 13. January 2007, a young man got off a subway train in uh, Washington, D.C., down near the Capitol. He was carrying his violin case, and he got off the subway Stopped near a trash can, opened up his violin case, took out his violin, put the case out so people could put tips in his case as they went by. And really a pretty ordinary scene. Happens all the time. Major cities throughout the United States, you'll see starving artists who want to make a few extra dollars, put out their case, play a little bit. Hopefully folks will put money in there. This man was uh, unusual. The man was Joshua Bell. Uh, Joshua Bell is one of the greatest violin players of our generation. And he... uh, took out his violin, which was made by Stradivarius. It was a $3.5 million violin. And he began playing a piece by Bach that's one of the most beautiful and challenging pieces to play that has ever been written. So it's actually a very unusual scene. Now, what's interesting was uh, just a few nights earlier, Joshua Bell had been in uh, Boston Symphony Hall and he had played this exact same piece. Tickets were about, on average, about $100 per person. And Joshua Bell makes about $1,000 a minute for his performances. So what do you imagine he he made as he stood in the subway in Washington, D.C.? Well, if you want to go uh, on YouTube this afternoon, security camera caught this whole scene. It's remarkable because of the 1,097 people that passed by, only 20 stopped to listen at all. Okay, 1,077 just, just zoomed through on their way past the subway, through the subway, past Joshua Bell playing this amazing piece of music, looking at a $3.5 million musical instrument. They just zipped on by. Only 20 people stopped, and he collected tips totaling $32 on that day. Now, it's interesting as you watch the video, one woman knew who he was. As the video is going, one woman stops and stands there and waits for him to finish the piece. She alone claps and walks up to him and says, I know who you are. I saw you at the Library of Congress and has this conversation. One person, would you have stopped? Would you have known that you were witnessing greatness there in the subway station? Well, you know, my wife and I went to D.C. on our spring break trip, and we went to the National Gallery of Art, and we were passing through one room, and as we were going through, I said, look, Trissy, look, that's a Rembrandt. And then I said, and that's a Rembrandt, and that's a Rembrandt, and that's a Picasso, and that's a Monet. I'm kind of tired. I'm going to go sit outside and listen to some music. Yeah? And so I went outside, and I might, I might have been listening to Joshua Bell because I confessed to my artistic friends, I don't know what I'm looking for, and I don't know what I'm listening to. I don't know greatness when I see it or hear it in that realm. Now, when I dress up in a suit and I put on a tie and I get really uncomfortable and I go to a symphony and I sit there and I've paid a lot of money, I say, that must be greatness because I just paid a lot of money and I'm really uncomfortable. That's what greatness must look like and sound like, right? I wouldn't spot it in a subway station. I just wouldn't know. It's one of the greatest illustrations of greatness overlooked, completely missed by the vast majority of people who pass by. This morning we're going to look at the greatest story in all of human history of greatness overlooked. God sent his son, God in human flesh, 
creator of the universe, redeemer of all mankind, the one who will reign supreme over all things. And almost everybody missed it. I want you to read with me in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, and in Isaiah we have learned that means pay attention. God's saying, I'm about to say something, something that's really important. Don't miss this. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. Nothing unusual there. God is beginning with the end of the story and he's saying, behold, my servant will prosper. He will literally, he will live wisely and his wisdom will lead to success. And as a result, he will be high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. And Isaiah uses terminology that he has previously applied only to God. Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord is high and exalted. He is the lofty one. Now Isaiah, through the spirit of the Lord, says, so is the servant. He will prosper. He will be successful. God begins with the end. He says, this is my evaluation of the servant's life. It was an absolute, complete success. To us, that should not be a surprise because we know more of the story. But Isaiah is about to forewarn his readers. The servant will not be what you expect. His life will be successful in the final evaluation, but most of you will probably miss it if you don't know what you're looking for. Because if you look at his life on the whole, it seems as if it's a complete failure. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Why will they be literally not sprinkled, but startled? Because this one who is the triumphant servant, high and exalted, who is taking upon himself this praise that's only been reserved for God previously, will be one who suffers. This song that we're entering into right now is called the song of the suffering servant. It's a life characterized by suffering. As a matter of fact, he's going to be so marred that he won't even look like a man any longer. And it says kings will just be shocked. Many nations will will stop their own speaking in their, their stun revelation that this one that God says is the ultimate triumphant king is the same one who's been marred, beaten, whipped, and scourged. How do you put these two together? How do you reconcile this seeming contradiction? Isaiah is going to go on. He's going to say, in fact, all of his life is so ordinary that people will just pass him by. 53 verse 1. Who has believed our message? It's it's almost unbelievable. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There is nothing that is impressive about him. Verse 2, it says he's like a tender shoot coming out. That is uh, literally uh, a sucker shoot. If if you're into gardening at all, which I kill everything, but I understand this principle. Uh, That's the shoot that comes out at the bottom. It's the kind that you you don't want. You don't want it on the plant because it's taking away from the part you want to grow. And so you go along and you trim it. You just cut it off. Snip, 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 snip. That's what the gardener does. Isaiah is saying, that's how we're going to look on his life. It's of no value. Cut it off. Or he will 
alternatively be like a root that's coming out of the parched ground. You pass him by and you won't even notice him or you might even trample upon him. He has no stately form or majesty that we should even look upon him. Think about his beginnings. Born in a manger. Raised in a city called Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? How could this one be great? And literally, Isaiah says, even his physical form is nothing to look at. We're not going to stop. We're not going to be impressed by this one. Everyone's not going to surround him and say, wow, what a, what a beautiful, amazing, attractive person. You know, it's interesting. It's kind of, kind of ironic. A few years ago that um, Mel Gibson, when he produced Passion of the Christ, he cast Jim Caviezel as the character for Jesus. In 2004, Jim Caviezel was named one of People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive, right? Jesus wouldn't have been on that list. (laughs) We don't like to think of it in those terms, but it says he would be like one whom men hide their face from. There's no physical thing about him that stands out. Four books of the Bible are written specifically, explicitly about Jesus Christ. 3,779 verses and not a single description of what he looked like. How tall was he? Was he tall or short? Was he fat or thin? Did he have a beard? Do we really know? How long was his hair? We don't know. Every culture thinks they know, and so they make an image of Jesus that's just like themselves. Like there's a white Jesus picture, there's a black Jesus picture, Chinese picture of Jesus. Got all kinds of We don't know. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. Other characters in the Bible, there are descriptions. David, handsome, ruddy in appearance. Wow, he's a good looking guy. Mm. Solomon, he's handsome. All the ladies liked him, wanted to come after him. Absalom, wow, he was handsome. Saul even, Saul, head and shoulders above the rest. Jesus, the neighbors would have said, you know, we remember him. We remember him. You know, he was a really good kid. I don't remember him disobeying his parents. Probably, he's probably a little too religious for his own good. I think that got him in trouble at the end of his life. That's probably, you know, but I, don't, I cannot tell you, what did he look like? I don't know. Common, ordinary, nothing standing out about him. And you know, that was on purpose. God does nothing by accident. God put his son into a human body that was completely unremarkable. So his body would not be a distraction from him revealing the arm of the Lord, the power and strength of God to accomplish his purposes. But people would have passed him by. Third, His entire life was haunted by pain. Verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Literally a, a man of illness and pain. A man of illness and pain. And I don't think Isaiah is speaking literally here. He's speaking figuratively. Jesus was a man who carried about sorrow always. I have no doubt that he enjoyed life and he laughed from time to time and told jokes, but he wasn't frivolous. He he wasn't trivializing life because he was the only one who actually saw the realities that were going on around him. He understood exactly why he had come. He knew that he had come to die. He knew that the world and every single one of us was desperately, deeply, completely broken and alienated from God. And so he always carried around that sorrow, sorrow of of our sin, sorrow of our pain. I think one of the most moving scenes in the entire Bible is John chapter 11, where Jesus 
comes up to the tomb of Lazarus and he's with Mary and Martha, his close, close friends that he loves deeply and they're weeping because their brother has died. And there are professional mourners there and they're weeping and wailing. He's looking out at this scene and it says Jesus wept. Even though he knew in moments he would raise Lazarus from from the dead, still Jesus wept. Why? Because he was entering into the experience of the consequence of sin, which is death, and all the pain that it brings into the world. He was a man of sorrows, always carrying about the weight of the world, quite literally, on his shoulders. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And our conclusion, our summary about his life is this. That was a life that had no value. What was the point? What did it add? Verse 3 again. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That word for despised, it shows up twice in verse 3. It doesn't mean uh, emotionally that we hated him. It means that we dismissed him. Like one from whom men hide their face. You see someone on the street and, and they're begging and you don't really want to make eye contact with them. They add nothing to your life and it's uncomfortable to even look at them and say that's how we regarded Jesus and we turned aside. We did not esteem him. We did not hold him up highly. Instead, we esteemed or evaluated his life like this. He's been stricken by God. How could a life be so incredibly miserable except for the fact that this man has sinned against God and God is coming to curse him? This is a man who's under a curse. That was the evaluation of his life. This is God's doing. God has stricken him. God has smitten him. He is cursed. We could not be more wrong in our evaluation of him. God says, no, this is in fact the most successful life ever lived. I go to my high school reunions to watch people. I don't know about you, but it's a fascinating thing. And what is most fascinating to me at my high school reunions is to observe the reversals of fortune. You ever notice that? Those who, man, they were on the top of the heap, whether it's academically, athletically, student government, whatever, man, they were it. And with all those opportunities in life, somehow they've been squandered, 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 and they show up at their high school reunion, and where are they? They're still living in high school. Might even wear the letter jacket. (laughs) Doesn't quite fit, but you remember me? Oh, man, it's so sad. And then you'll see these other folks who you didn't maybe even know their names passed by all the time. They were not standing out, whether it's student government, athletics, academics. They didn't stand out, but... They've made these good choices, wise choices. They've moved on and life uh, has prospered. And they're the ones holding court. It's a remarkable thing to see, this evaluation, this reversal of fortunes. And what it proves to me always is that as high school students, we don't know how to look for greatness. Life of Christ, evaluating the most important man who ever lived. We don't know how to evaluate his life. So Isaiah tells us ahead of time, no, in fact, This is the most successful life that ever was lived. Read with me again verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced through, through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who cared that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Everything about Jesus Christ's life was intentional. There was nothing accidental. His life was a complete success because God intended him first and foremost to come and to be a substitute for us, to die in our place. So all of that suffering that we see Jesus going through was according to the will of God for the purpose of paying the debt of our sins, standing in our place. Notice the repetition throughout this passage. It is That he bore our griefs, he bore our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened or punished so that we could have peace, literally shalom, that is restoration, fullness. He was scourged so that we could be healed. The griefs and the sorrows that he was carrying for which we despised him were actually ours. His scourging, the punishment he took, was because of our sins so that we could be healed. He was beaten so that we could be healed. And none of this is figurative language. It's poetic, but it's not figurative. It's not, it's not a mythical thing. It's not a spiritualized thing. Jesus Christ suffered a, a literal, physical pain, suffering, and death on our behalf. And so Isaiah uses extremely graphic imagery. This word for pierced is one of the most... Uh, Violent ways a person could die in the Hebrew language. He was pierced. He was crushed, which literally meant to pulverize something. He was chastened or punished. He was scourged. And we can't help but think back upon the experience of Christ as he was beaten, crown of thorns put upon his head. Then he was stripped naked and a torturer came out with a whip that had stones and bone and metal embedded in it. And he whipped into the back of Jesus and into his buttocks and down across his thighs. And the whip would sink in and then he would pull it back. And every time he pulled it back, he would be tearing away, removing flesh. This was not a discipline that was given to a slave that you wanted to work again the next day. This was punishment that was designed to remove a person's strength so that the crucifixion would not last so long. And so over and over again, the flesh of Jesus Christ is torn out across from his his back and down across through his thighs. I have no doubt that when we see the scars on the back of Jesus, we will be led to weep. Because in our anesthetized world, we just don't experience anything like this cruelty. And then in this incredibly weakened position, 
He bears the crossbeam himself, but he is too weak to carry it, so another must help him. He's taken up to the top of a hill. He's laid down on that board, and spikes are driven through his wrists, not through his hands because the hands can't support the weight of a body. It's through the wrist, almost certainly severing that nerve that runs up and down our arm. You ever hit your funny bone? It's not very funny, is it? That nerve just fires off, and you have to rub it for a while. Imagine a spike going through that. And so every time you would have to breathe as you're hanging on the cross, you have to pull up and irritate those ner- that nerve and fire shoots down your arms and you're standing upon a spike that's driven through the tops of both feet. And after a while, as the fluid builds upon your heart and you don't have the strength to lift up any longer, you cannot get a breath and you die of suffocation, slow and cruel and painful. That is the death that Jesus Christ died for us. In our place. Not for anything wrong that he had done, but for us. Read with me verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Literally, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to attack him. The metaphor is this, we're the stupid sheep, okay? And we just wander off all the time. And when we wander off, we're we're isolated, we're vulnerable, and the predator comes. And the predator is about to attack and destroy life, take life from us. And God causes the attack from the predator, from sin and death, to fall on him, to fall on our good shepherd, And so that he can die in our place. Because we have wandered off. Part of the imagery that's behind this whole section, uh, you see it in the, the choice of the verbs that Isaiah uses. It's the imagery of the day of atonement. That one day a year when the priest would make a payment for the debts of the entire nation. The sin of the entire nation. And part of that ritual involved the sacrifice of, of two goats. It's in Leviticus chapter 16. Beginning in verse 8. It says, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. That is, he will kill it and it will be burned up as an offering to the Lord. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. And then he goes on and tells what this means specifically. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. If it was a bad year, it took a long time. He's standing there with his hands on the goat, confessing sin after sin after sin. The idea is transferring the guilt of that sin onto the goat. He shall lay his hands upon the head of the goat and then send it into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And according to tradition, this man who stood in ready, who was leading the goat out of the camp, out of the, the, the nation of Israel, bearing their sins away so that this goat would not bring the sin back into the people, would go with the goat and then kick it off a ledge down into a cliff so it would die. We don't want that coming back upon us. 
It's already been carried away. Well, the imagery that Isaiah is drawing for us is Jesus Christ is the scapegoat. He's done nothing wrong, but we have. And so our debt is placed upon him. He's the scapegoat. He's the one who carries our debt away into the wilderness and dies there. On our behalf, suffering for us. And in contrast to the goats, Jesus did so willingly. The goats were selected and had no choice, but Jesus chose voluntarily to take our sin upon him. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, or better, he humbled himself. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Notice the change in analogy. Speaking of us, we're the foolish sheep. Jesus, he's the one who's silent, who's choosing voluntarily to take upon himself our debts. When I'm suffering, I'm not silent. I don't know about you. When I'm suffering, I'm not, I'm not silent. If I'm suffering and I know that I've done something and I'm bringing this bad experience upon myself, then as soon as I figure that out, I confess, but I'm not silent. I confess. On the other hand, when I'm suffering and I feel like I'm innocent, particularly if I'm suffering because of something somebody else did, I'm not silent. I'm protesting. God, this is unfair. This is unjust. The book of Job is helping us understand that. Job is protesting, protesting, protesting. God, I think my hands are clean. I'm innocent. We protest. Well, Jesus is silent. Why? Well, first, he has nothing to confess. Second, he's not angry at God. He's not protesting against God because he has willingly chosen to take upon himself our debt. It was his choice. John chapter 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. No one forces me to go to the cross. Jesus sacrificed and made a payment for our sins and suffered for our sins because he chose to, not because he was forced to. Fourth, I skipped some, didn't I? It was undeserved. I don't want to skip that. Verse 8. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, his contemporaries around him, who even cared that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one cared that there was this great injustice occurring. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Now, we know that historically to be the case. His contemporaries judged him to be worthy of death, the one who had blasphemed. He was dying for his own sin, so we should put him in the grave with the wicked. But God reversed that, and he said, no, he's going to be with the rich man in his death. He's going to have an honorable death. Why? Because he has done nothing wrong. In the sacrificial system, only unblemished animals could be sacrificed. Jesus Christ was an unblemished lamb. He is our Passover lamb. His blood covers over the doorposts of our hearts so that when God looks at our sin, instead he sees the debt of Jesus Christ, unblemished, spotless, completely innocent and undeserving, a substitute for us. Fourth, his death was completely successful. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. 
putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear, carry away their iniquities. Verse 10, it says, the Lord was pleased to crush him. That doesn't mean that the Lord was happy about it. It means that this was the will of God. It wasn't an accident. God didn't become overwhelmed by the forces of history, by the Jews and the Romans' hatred of his son, and now he finds his son on a cross. No, this was the will of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says this. This man, Peter is speaking about Jesus. He says, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter is saying, you're to blame. You nailed him to the cross. The Romans are to blame. They were the instrument through which you nailed him to the cross. But ultimately, this was all the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This life was the perfect fulfillment of the will of God. Jesus, the only one who perfectly lived the will of God. And the result was this. To our benefit, we call it Good Friday. Costly for Christ, but so good for us. To our benefit, he will justify the many. That is, he will put them back in right relationship with God. And for whom does this sacrifice apply? Verse 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of a few of us? No. Praise God. God has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall upon him. And in the context, we know that's not just Jews, that's Gentiles. That's all people. The New Testament picks up this beautiful theme. 1 John chapter 2 says this. He himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Propitiation means to satisfy the wrath. That is, God attacked him. God allowed sin and death to attack him so that he would be the payment for us, so that his wrath, his anger against sin could be satisfied in Christ. That's propitiation. The wrath of God satisfied in Christ. He stood in our place taking the weight of our sin. For ours only? No. John says, but for those of the whole world. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, no matter your background, no matter what sins that you think they're big or small or many or few, no matter what you have done, your sin creates alienation, estrangement from God. The relationship is broken. But in Jesus Christ, you can have that debt removed and there's a bridge that's built. You're reconciled to God. Through him, you can be put back in a right relationship with God. And all that you have to do is say, God, Thank you for giving Jesus Christ to suffer and die on my behalf. Thank you that his death counts in place of my death so that I don't have to remain separated from you. The moment that you believe that debt of sin is completely removed forever and you are given eternal life. Eternal life begins now. It is life with God. It extends forever. It is a different quantity of life. It is a different quality of life. It is life with God. And you receive it as a gift through faith. You cannot earn it. Jesus Christ didn't die so that you would pay him back. He died so that you would believe. And having believed that you would live a life like he lived. Not so that you would pay him back. And so I encourage you, if you've never said to God, thank you 
for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, to remove my sins. You do so right now. You You can do it by prayer. Prayer is not anything magical. It's just a conversation with God. You don't even have to bow your head or close your eyes. You can just call out in your heart and say, God, I believe. I believe Jesus died for me. I accept his gift. This beautiful song ends where it began. It ends with the, the exaltation of the servant. This paradoxical life of suffering in between, but it ends with him being exalted. The father saying, well done. The end of verse 10 says, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That is a typical uh, threefold Old Testament blessing. This is a life well lived. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. He will look back and recognize he has accomplished the will of God. Verse 12, therefore, this is God speaking, I will allot him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors or the rebels. And he interceded for the transgressors. This was a life perfectly lived. Even if we don't recognize it as such. Does that just, does that just put you in awe? Does, does it astonish you again? Or do you say, oh man, I've, I've just heard that so many times. It's easy for that to happen because we just, we've heard it many times. We've thought about it before. My challenge for you this week, my prayer for you this week is that in a new and and startlingly fresh way, you would once again be in awe of the sacrifice of Christ. I want to encourage you to um, pull out one of the gospel accounts and read through the last week of the life of Christ, the triumphal entry that happened on this Sunday. When he's welcomed in, oh yeah, he must be Messiah. And days later, rejected, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he's beaten and whipped and scourged and goes to a painful and bloody, shameful death on the cross for us. I encourage you to read that. And ask God just to stir up your heart afresh with gratefulness for the sacrifice of Christ. So we close, we're going to take communion together. Communion is an opportunity for us as family of God to be reminded, just in this, this small way, with, with bread in a cup, bread reminding us of the the bodily, physical sacrifice of Christ's blood uh, represented by the cup poured out to remove the debt of our sins. And even this morning, I encourage you as we're being served, just ask God to renew and refresh your appreciation for the sacrifice of Christ. The men come forward. Uh, We'll wait till everyone is served and then we'll take the elements together. Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it in front of his disciples, and he said, this bread is the representation, this uh, is a figure of my, my body, the physical suffering that I will go through as a result of your sin. Let's take the bread together. Then he took the cup, he said, this cup is uh, the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood paid, uh, poured out as a payment for the debt of your sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, thank you for the physical suffering and the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I pray that we would um, be reminded in a really vibrant, fresh way of the, the depth of that sacrifice, of the significance of it for us. 
removing our sin, giving us life, hope, freedom, peace. His pain bring healing to us. His loss being our gain. I pray, Father, that you would refresh our vision throughout this week. In the name of Jesus Christ. The ransom from heaven. Jesus Messiah. Lord of all. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, our Messiah, the one who is anointed to remove the debt of our sins. He is Lord of all. We confess our love for him, our appreciation for him, even if it's in just such a small way. Look forward to the day that we can see him. We can see his his scars and his wounds for us. And I pray that as we wait for that day, you would refresh and renew our appreciation, our gratitude for this incredible sacrifice that he made for us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.